Welcome, and this morning we're going to be jumping into our summer series. I have a couple guys that are going to pass out some handouts for us. Um, And you may need to lean in on someone else if we run out of handouts, because that's possible. I'll forego my extra there. So this morning we're going to be starting a series called Rhythms of Christian Discipleship, and we'll explain what that entails a little bit. But I want to start off by asking some questions, kind of under the category of automatic, habitual, and extraordinary. Automatic, habitual, and extraordinary. The types of things we do in our daily lives without even realizing it is that first category. Some things are things we do without even thinking. And this is going to be a little bit of a participatory morning, so please don't leave me with too many awkward silences. Question... What are some things, what's an example of something that you do without even thinking about it? You just do it. Breathe. Breathing, yes. Breathing's a good one. If y'all are having to consciously think about breathing, sleeping would be very challenging. What else? Blink. Blinking, yeah, we automatically take care of that. What else? What is it? Reading. reading, yeah, you just see words and you start reading them. Yeah, good. Anything else? Hearing, yep, yep. The one I thought of was like heart pumping blood. That's something I don't put a whole lot of thought into, but I'm thankful it happens. So that's something that's automatic. We don't even think about it. We just do it. The second are some things that take conscious effort, but they have become such a regular part of our life that we don't have to think much about it. And we don't have to really think about it if we risk skipping it. So what are some things that we do pretty regularly? Yeah, we do have to think about them, but it's habitual, automatic, almost. Eat. Eat. Yeah. Most of us don't have to put a calendar reminder on our calendars to remind us it's dinner time. Our, our stomachs take care of that uh, notification process. What else? Drive. Drive? Yeah, you just kind of Get from point A to point B and you realize, oh, I got there. I didn't even think about it. Yeah, great. What else? Sleeping. Sleeping. Yep, that, that happens. Yeah, that happens pretty much automatically and it's a habit. We don't have to think about it. Anything else? Typing. Typing. Yep. Hopefully it's things like brushing your teeth and showers kind of fall into this category. If not, now is definitely the time in life to get that figured out. These should be habits. These should be regular things that we just do. Yeah, we're not automatically doing them, but they're so habitual that you don't have to really go out of your way to plan for it. But then there's a third category of things, and I'm calling them extraordinary things. And typically, we think of extraordinary as being great, but I'm taking that literally, etymologically, extraordinary, outside of that which is just routine and habitual. Some things we absolutely will not do unless they are scheduled, planned for, and executed. We could call these things extraordinary activities. These are the things that are extra or outside of what is ordinary, regular, routine, and habitual. What might be an example of something in this category of it's not going to happen unless you plan for it? Homework, okay. Yeah, that might be one you want to move towards the habitual category, but yeah. What else? Relationships. Relationships, yeah, those don't happen by accident. Doctor's appointments, vacations. You're not just going to stumble your way into a vacation uh, amidst a busy work schedule. 
those sorts of things. There's a, a long list of things that fall into this extraordinary category. And in this series, as we talk about rhythms of Christian discipleship, we're talking about rhythms, and for the purpose of this series, these are those spiritual habits which take conscious effort, that is your first fill in the blank, conscious effort, but with practice become regular and routine in our lives as Christians. It's something that might start out as extraordinary, unusual for us, but with practice becomes regular. And Christian discipleship refers to our individual walks as disciples of Jesus. I want to clarify that because we've, we've heard discipleship in two different ways. Maybe you've heard of it as I need to be one-on-one -on -one discipled by someone. But for the purpose of this series, we're using discipleship to mean just what we as individuals do in our walk with the Lord. The process of us being followers, disciples of Christ. A disciple is fundamentally one who follows learns from, and ultimately imitates his or her teacher. And that's who we all are of Christ, those of us who are Christ followers. So this summer series is a survey of key spiritual habits, rhythms, and disciplines that promote spiritual health and growth in godliness as disciples of Jesus. The series will survey prayer, Bible reading, corporate worship, witness, work, fellowship, service, and learning. We could add more to this list, but this is really a sampling of kind of core components of rhythms in our lives as believers. And the aim is to encourage each of us to make these rhythms a part of our daily lives as disciples, not just extraordinary things that we have to go wildly out of our way to schedule and plan for, but to really centralize these into our rhythms and habits. And we kind of touched on it already. We joked about the, the homework. But there are things in our lives that we have to move from the category of extraordinary to habitual. Like brushing your teeth is a great example of that. If that's something that's extraordinary, that needs to be moved towards something that's habitual. And the same is true when we talk about these spiritual rhythms, spiritual habits. Maybe as we're talking about these, you're going to be realizing, no, this isn't really a habit for me. This isn't really something I regularly do uh, and that's going to be a challenge from this summer is to be moving these things towards what's regular. So this morning, we're going to be talking about kind of zooming out, not talking about one specific discipline or one specific habit, but talking about how to move something from an extraordinary activity to a rhythmic discipline. How to go from something that happens once in a while to something that's regularly a part of our lives. And we're going to do that in 1 Timothy chapter 4. So please turn with me there. 1 Timothy chapter 4. We're going to primarily be looking at two verses, 1 Timothy 4, 7, and 8, but we're also going to read quite a bit of the context surrounding it. So we'll actually start in 1 Timothy 3, verse 14. But again, our focus will be on verses 7 and 8 of chapter 4. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version, and that's again 1 Timothy 3, verse 14 is where we'll start. This is Paul writing to Timothy. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh Vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. 
Now, the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing's to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving, for it's made holy by the word of God and prayer. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. And verse 7, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the tremendous privilege it is to be able to open it up, read it, and read it in our own language. Thank you for the translators that have dedicated their lives to bringing this to us in an accessible way. And we are spoiled. We take it for granted that we have your word. Most of us carrying around copies in our pockets. And we're just so privileged. So help us now, Lord, as we spend time, spend this hour digging into your word, allow it to be applied rightly by your spirit, and help us to be thinking critically on how this is going to be impacting our lives going forward. I ask you to help me to speak clearly and as you would have me, and you'd be with every hearer here, giving them discernment and wisdom as far as how to apply it. We lift this time up to you, Lord. It's in Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. All right. So, Before we jump into verse 7 and 8, which is kind of the key for this morning, the reason we started in verse 3, I want to draw to your attention right off the bat. Verse 7 and 8 says, have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths, rather train yourself for godliness. So we're talking about training for godliness, but the end of chapter 3 highlights something very important about godliness. Look at chapter 3, verse 16. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. So what is this mystery of godliness? Well, the mystery is, this mystery of godliness is a person. Jesus Christ is godliness incarnate. Rather than that verse picking up, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness, which was, dot, 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 it's he was. Godliness is a person, and Jesus Christ is godliness incarnate, which means as we talk about growing in godliness, we're not talking about growing in some sort of abstract character trait that we can just kind of tack on to our lives. It's, a, it's fundamentally growing in our likeness to, our conformity to Jesus Christ. 
It's becoming more like him. So that's why we needed to see chapter three before we jump into chapter four and those verses about training ourselves for godliness because this isn't just some character trait we tack on. This is imitating Christ. So when we think about how to develop these rhythms of godliness, we're going to look at two different essential practices. And the first is principled neglect. Principled neglect. That may seem an interesting way to start, but if we don't start here, we're just going to be trying to add things into an already full life. Life is a series of decisions to prioritize one thing and neglect another. You do this all the time without thinking of it. Because we can't do everything, developing rhythms of godliness in our lives demands that we neglect certain things. We will always be neglecting more than we're doing. Have you ever thought about that? Every time you say yes to doing something, there's a thousand things that you're not doing. I mean, if I asked you what you did yesterday, you could list off probably a pretty detailed list. If we kind of kept going, it'd probably be 20, 30, 40 items or so as you start going through the specifics. But if I tried to list off or asked you to list off everything that you didn't do yesterday, that list could be almost infinite as you think through all of the things that you didn't do. Even just the things that you didn't do that you could have done. There's plenty of things that you didn't do that you couldn't do. Like, I didn't go to the moon yesterday. Okay, yeah, you couldn't go to the moon yesterday. But you probably didn't drive to whatever town, and you could have. You get the point. The point is, without us even realizing it, we're neglecting certain things to make room for the things that we're prioritizing. The question is, what are the principles by which you're neglecting those things? We all have the exact same amount of time every day. If we were to put up on the screen our bank accounts, we would see that those are all different. But if we put up on the screen our time, how, many how much time do we have over the next 24 hours? We would all have the exact same amount of time. We all have 24 hours in a day. We all have 24 hours to spend. None of us are a millisecond richer or poorer than others of us. We all have the same amount of time. We have the exact same amount of time to spend. We talk about spending time, but we often fail to realize that it is a resource far more valuable than any financial gain we could have. And as we've already said, there's literally tens of thousands of ways you could spend. You could have spent the last minute, for example, but you've chosen to spend it here listening to this lesson. Whether or not we realize it consciously, we are making decisions to neglect things. That is, things to not do. And we're making thousands of these decisions all the time. And this morning, I want to put forward some biblical principles by which we can make those decisions and offer some guidance towards the types of things we must neglect. Resolutions to grow in godliness and implement spiritual habits often fall flat because we fail to realize that something must go in order to make room for those habits. Something must go in order to make room for those habits. It's the put off, put on motif that's seen throughout the letters of the New Testament that you put off one thing so you can put on another. Most clearly put off sin, put off the flesh, put on righteousness, but it happens in our daily practice on smaller things also. So Paul concisely in these two verses offers three categories of things to neglect. I'll read verse 7 and 8 again for us. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. 
Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So the first category of things that we're talking about is in verse 7, and that is rejecting the irreverent. He talks about irreverent, silly myths. Timothy is instructed to avoid, that is, steer clear of, have nothing to do with, that which is irreverent. Paul specifically calls out irreverent myths. Irreverent has the connotation and the meaning of totally worldly, pointless, worthless, impurity, profanity. They're all contained in the sense of this word. And there's some things that we need to deprioritize and we need to avoid that are in this category. These are things in our lives that are totally worthless, totally worldly, and totally unprofitable. There's no redeeming value. You look at these things and they are sins. At the end of the day, they are sins. And anything in our life that does not flow from a heart of reverence for God and worship to him should be rejected. 1 Corinthians 10, 31, if you're not familiar with it, you should get familiar with it. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Everything we do is to be in conformity, in reverence for God. So anything that is irreverent must go. It must be rejected. Sin must go. Sin must go. Hebrews 12.1 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. We need to throw off those sins, lay those sins aside, because they will drag us down. This question for discussion at tables will take probably maybe three or four minutes to share, and it's a personal question, so don't usually start off with these, but nevertheless, what are current practices, habits, or activities in your life that fall into the category of irreverent? Why are you clinging on to them, and what steps do you need to take to get them out of your life? You guys can discuss that at tables. If you don't feel comfortable sharing, I would encourage you to jot something down here as a priority of something that needs to go. So take a few minutes to talk through these things, um, and then we'll come back together and pick up with the, the second category. So go for a couple minutes. Right. I realize you guys are just getting started with the conversation, but we'll move forward. I, again, encourage you, if you are thinking through this question and realizing something that needs to go, jot it down, because these are the sorts of things that if it just kind of stays there in the, in the mind but never actually transforms to action, that's pretty much useless. So. But would anyone like to share things from the conversation at the tables that uh, you guys talked about with this question? Amusement. Yeah. Now, someone that knows English better than me may be correcting me, but I think amusement, literally, etymologically, it means like without thinking, like amuse. Like you think about something, you muse about something. A is like you turn it off, but yeah, exactly. Just amusing ourselves to death, basically. Yeah, huge category. Anyone else? Yeah. Yeah, we talked about um, just spending a lot of time on phones. Phones, yeah. Yeah. Anything else? I think the truth, amusement, is that 
Great question. And I think that goes back to the, the way that word is used just like way back when is not the way we use it today. So if something's like capturing our attention, that's not inherently right. evil. Um, no, I wouldn't, I wouldn't throw everything in that category. Because whether you eat or drink or whatever you do to all to the glory of God, and I think God has made good things to be enjoyed. I mean, he talked about that right immediately before in, in chapter four, the, the good things meant to be received with thankfulness. There's people that forbid marriage. There's people that require abstinence from all foods. And the answer is, those things aren't bad. They're good things created by God to be received with thanksgiving in verse four. So I think, yeah, the, the immediate preceding context helps us think through that category too. Yeah. Yeah, maybe it might be helpful to uh, talk about the idea of very, uh, we value hedonism, we value, you know, whatever, uh, relativism, and so our culture doesn't really understand ideas of delayed gratification, or hmm. that's all on those lines, so maybe, could you just maybe give a definition of maybe what your idea of what sacrifice is? Um, idea of sacrifice, and did I, did I refer to sacrifice, or, I guess, where are you seeing sacrifice? Like, why would it, no, I, 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 maybe I'm overthinking this, but why, why would it be necessary for someone to like, stop doing the things that you mentioned in pursuit of something else? Okay, yeah, gotcha. I think we'll, we'll get to that a little bit more, but in verse 7, have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths because those are things that are untrue, contrary to, um, contrary to a walk with the Lord, contrary to training ourselves in godliness. So that's kind of like, that's the reason that we sacrifice those things uh, because they're not good things, I guess. But that's probably not the typical way we'd think of a sacrifices in giving something up. So good question, though. Yeah. Does anyone else have any other thoughts on uh, that question as you guys discussed it at tables? All right, we're going to roll on to this second category of avoiding the irrelevant. So we saw first the have nothing to do with irreverent, but they're also silly myths. These things that are frivolous. This is similar to the former without the morally reprehensible element. The first is overtly anti-God. It is irreverent. The second are these things that are just silly. But these silly things might seem harm, harmless, might not seem harmful on the surface. So on the surface, they might seem fine. But it's that subtlety that makes it all the more destructive because we think something, oh, it's just, it's just silly. It's just, it's not a, it's not a big deal. It's just kind of out there. It doesn't seem totally wrong. It's just silly, but that's what makes it so sneaky. So when developing spiritual habits for Christian discipleship, this is often a category that is apt to trip us up. These are the things that don't seem quote unquote evil, but if closely observed are shown to be fruitless empty, and totally unhelpful in promoting a life of godliness. It's not helpful. And you've heard it said, I heard it from Justin, I'm not afraid of failure, I'm afraid of succeeding at what does not matter. I think that was a William Carey quote. And there's a lot of empty and silly things that we can succeed at that do nothing to promote godliness in us or in the lives of those around us. So Paul brings these, these two categories of myths up 
and just says, I have nothing to do with them, steer clear of them, and then he jumps on to what his exhortation is. In this section, there's, there's two imperative verbs, two verbs that are saying, do something about this. The first is reject, avoid, steer clear of, and the second is rather train yourself for godliness. But before we look at that specific part, rather train yourself for godliness, verse 8 also introduces a third category. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way. And this third category is limiting the somewhat valuable. Limiting the somewhat valuable. Not totally eliminating the somewhat valuable. He does say bodily training is of some value. And assuming we have successfully eliminated all irreverent, that is disobedient, and silly, empty pursuits, activities, and beliefs from our lives, we can still get tripped up in this third way. We can have our lives filled with good things that are not the best thing. If we fail to wisely limit the somewhat valuable things in our lives to make room for the most valuable things, we will still ultimately neglect what matters most. This is the Martha and Mary account. Turn with me to Luke 10, 38 through 42. This illustrates this point, I think, well. Doing something that's not bad, serving is not bad, but in this case, what was best was neglected. Luke 10, 38 through 42. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you're anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. There is never a day when God providentially orchestrates events in your life such that you cannot honor him. Think about that. There's never going to be a day when you get to the end of the day and say, Lord, I intended to honor you with my life this morning, but then you sent too many things my way, and I couldn't honor you with everything that you sent me. I couldn't fulfill everything you wanted me to do. There's never a situation when you can point your finger back at God and say, you just didn't give me enough time, Lord. I couldn't honor you today. There's never a time, there is enough time in every day to do all that God intends for us to do to glorify and obey him. But that often means we might need to say no to good things, truly good things, things that are not the best thing, the necessary thing, or the ultimately valuable thing. Again, take a few minutes to discuss this at tables, but what are some good things, these somewhat valuable things? They do have value. These things in your lives that you are sometimes tempted to overvalue such that these things crowd out ultimate and eternal priorities. And practically, how do you, or if you're not, how can you keep these areas in perspective? Just take, again, a few minutes to think through these, these good things, these somewhat valuable things that are not of ultimate value. So take a few minutes for that. All right, coming back together. Anyone that hasn't shared something yet that uh, would be willing to volunteer to the group? What are what was some answers to this questions that y'all had at tables?
Oh, yeah. Relationships. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, feel free to just shout it out. Sorry, I missed your hand there. Yep. Fitness. Fitness, yep. You stole that one from Paul. <laughs> not not that Paul. I mean Paul Paul oh. Bible Paul. That's that's what he was talking about, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, great. Yeah, to, to maximize those things that are responsibilities, they're somewhat valuable, you're not getting out of them. Um, yeah, that's a really good point. And that's a huge part of our life as believers is, is making, making use of the majority of our time that isn't spent in our quiet time. Like a 16-hour quiet time is awesome and not realistic. <laughs> so how do, we, how do we implement these things in the midst of lives full of responsibilities, full of spheres where we need to honor the Lord and everything? And that's a great example. Yeah. So moving forward, we talked about principled neglect. And really, I, I encourage you to think about that category as really what you're doing all the time. When you decide to do one thing and not the other, yes, you're deciding to do the one thing, but you're also by principle, neglecting something and thinking through what principles am I using when I neglect things. The next, after principled neglect, the flip side of that, is prioritized training. Prioritized training. We see that in, sorry, I'm still in Luke. Back to 1 Timothy. In uh, verse 8, well, sorry, end of verse 7, rather train yourself for godliness. This is prioritized training. And the demand of godliness is that training. It is that discipline. I don't know what version you might have. It's probably discipline yourself or train yourself. And it means to develop a person's behavior by instruction and practice. And it has a strong athletic connotation. Hence why Paul immediately brings up the bodily discipline term. It's, it's basically a word, yeah, just it's, it's working out, it's training, it's hard work. You could say this is a sweaty word. It's a word that kind of, it's an image of a gym. It's, it's, it's the idea of Olympic athletes, powerlifting belts, muscles, chalk, sweat, fatigue, hard work. It indicates hard work, dedication, and labor. Some things do not happen by accident, and godliness is definitely one of those things extraordinary, that thing, those things that are outside of the ordinary, extraordinary spiritual practices do not become rhythms without effort. We don't grow in this category without work, striving. We're not saved by that work, but it is still work. It is striving. So this term, discipline yourself, this is the only place in the New Testament that is used as a verb, but there's three other places where it's used as a state of being, like the state of being disciplined. I have those listed here, discipline or train. It's used in Hebrews 5.14, Hebrews 12.11, and 2 Peter 2.14, and I'll read those. The first, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So how did their powers of discernment become trained? By constant practice. Hebrews 12, 11. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. 
those who have been trained by it. It's a process. You've, you've been under the instruction for a season. And then 2 Peter 2.14 gives a helpful flip side to this. They have their eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. So this training thing doesn't just happen in the gym. It doesn't just happen in these spiritual disciplines and in pursuing godliness. We're being trained by something. And 2 Peter 2.14 highlights the type of training these individuals have received. They've been trained in greed. So we can be trained in things other than godliness. What are you training your heart with? So that's the priority that we must pursue, that discipline, that training. But the second is the value of godliness, the motivation behind it. And the value of godliness is that it's comprehensive value. It is of value in every way. In contrast to the physical discipline, which is of some value, that bodily training, it is somewhat valuable. Godliness is of value in every way. There is not an aspect of your life that will not be positively impacted by godliness. Godliness is not limited or confined. It pervades one's work, one's family, family life, thoughts, our church involvement, our friendships, our studies, our evangelism. Godliness is like a universal currency that holds value in every area of the believer's walk with Christ. So we should all have as our fixed aim to be godly men and women. And again, a reminder of what we talked about at the beginning, the profound mystery of godliness is that Jesus Christ is godliness incarnate. And we are clothed in his godliness and accepted by God based on his holiness, not ours. Nevertheless, we're still called to grow and pursue practical godliness, even as we're declared positionally godly because of our unity with Christ by faith in him. So growth in godliness enables the full enjoyment of God's design for our lives. First, that enjoyment here, but ultimately in the life to come. And we know that God himself has promised to supply all that we need for life and godliness. We see this in 2 Peter, verses 3 and 4 of the first chapter. His divine power, this is God's divine power, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So godliness is to be pursued. Question, more for personal reflection on this one. I'd again just circle one of those as you think through it, think through this summer. How are you currently prioritizing your growth in godliness? What's that look like in your life? And of the topics in this series, Lord willing, these are the things we'll be going over. Prayer, Bible reading, corporate worship, witness, work, fellowship, service, learning. Which do you see as a current area that is especially in need of focus in your life? Again, maybe circle an area that's going well and underline an area that you need to focus on. And obviously, I would encourage you all to be engaged in all the lessons this summer, but especially to be thinking through and prayerfully considering how can I grow in this area specifically? So as we wrap up, these are rhythms for the long haul. Training does not happen in a day. Growth in godliness demands patterns, disciplined patterns. Discipleship 
and obedience takes grace-fueled diligence. A constant process of put off and put on is needed when cultivating rhythms of Christian discipleship. So my question for all of you is, will you train for this? Will you prioritize growth in godliness as a disciple of Jesus Christ? Will you take the hard steps necessary to be growing and a flourishing follower of godliness incarnate, Jesus Christ? Or will you passively float? Will you roll along and hope you turn out all right? As we go into the summer series on rhythms of Christian discipleship, it is my prayer that each of you would commit to being men and women who take their growth in godliness seriously and seek to take practical steps to develop the patterns, habits, and rhythms necessary for a life of fruitfulness and maturity in Christ. So let me close us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much again for your word. We thank you for the challenge to be growing in godliness that we receive from your word, not only here in this passage, but also in others. Help us, Lord, to be men and women who are growing in this area. We know we can't do it apart from you. We know we're certainly not going to earn anything um, by this. Our salvation is rested fully in godliness incarnate and his work. And nevertheless, you call us to grow in our imitation of Christ, to grow in our practical steps of obedience. So I ask that for each individual here, as your word does its work on our hearts, you'd help us to be individuals who are more and more growing in our relationship with you and also radiating that relationship to others as people hear the reason for the hope that is in us and see Christ's love shining through us. So again, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this time. It's in Christ's precious name we pray. Amen.